Jim Greenwood is president and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization in Washington, D.C., representing over 1,000 biotechnology companies and academic institutions in more than 30 countries worldwide. He represented Pennsylvania's 8th District in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1993 to 2005 when he became Bio-CEO, and his deep relationships on Capitol Hill and his policy expertise have substantially raised Bio's profile and advocacy work. Under his leadership, he has successfully doubled the size of Bio, as well as increased its influence on global innovation. After a hugely successful tenure as Bio's CEO, Jim Greenwood announced that he will be stepping down at the end of the 2020 fiscal year. Representative Greenwood, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be with you. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, you decided to step down in a very quiet year without much going on, Jim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, just uh, just uh, presidential election and uh, coronavirus epidemic and... Uh, other than that, it's just another another day at DC. So when you led Bio, when you came over, it's been during a time of tremendous technological and change and innovation. How has your job changed over fifteen years leading the organization, given all of this technological breakthrough? Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. I, I think two things have um, been occurring uh, at the same time. The first is that the science has been galloping. Um, when I came on over fifteen years ago. Uh, I frankly was was probably a little over uh, uh, um, optimistic about how fast the pace of change would come and 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 the new and the new medicines would be uh, developed, um, but the pace has just continuously picked up. So now here we are, where we have gene therapy and cell therapy and immunotherapy and the ability to use CRISPR and gene editing, um, and and I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that there's nothing in the science that says that we can't eventually defeat every disease on the planet um, because there, we, we are able to, if we can't cure them, we can prevent them. If we can't prevent them, we can treat them. Uh, and the science is galloping. Unfortunately, at the same time and in somewhat parallel pace, um, the, the, um, uh, the prestige of the industry has declined. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that, and I'm happy to discuss all of them. Yeah, please. But our image is, is, is negative. And... Um, uh, and that's quite unfortunate because it has resulted, as you know, in um, uh, terrible uh, policy ideas that have come out of uh, the Congress, that come out of this administration, the past administration, and most of the 50 states uh, and around the world. And so here we are doing what I consider to be the Lord's work, trying to reduce human suffering and premature death and and enhance lives. Um, and and yet we are held in, in such disregard. So why is that? Fundamentally, a lot of reasons, but it's fundamentally because what has happened is that what is required to come from the pocket of the patient or the consumer keeps going up. Uh, we know, for instance, that if you look in the commercial market where a lot of people get their, um, and their insurance from their employer, about half of those who get their health insurance from their employer are now in high deductible plans. You know, every year, the insurance company talks to the employers, whether it's a small company, a middle-sized company, or a large company, and says, premium is going to go up X. And very frequently, the employer says, I can't afford that. I can't be competitive if I do that. What are my options? And the option most frequently is, well, you can continue to raise your deductible. So now if you have a $3,000 deductible, uh, where are you going to encounter it? You're most likely to encounter that deductible at the pharmacy 
Right. Fortunately, most of us don't have surgical procedures, and so um, you walk in and you walk into the drugstore and you get hit with this this huge out of pocket expense. You hear politicians and you hear many in the media using the phrase skyrocketing drug prices. If you look at the data, that's not what's happening at all. It's really been the 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 the, the increase in the net um, pricing of drugs has been actually negative, I think, in the last year. For the last several years, it's been low single digits. It's generally stayed consistently about 14% of the total healthcare spend for 15 years. Exactly. Be, you know, a percentage up or down, but, but generally in that sweet spot. So you had a, a, a convergence of events. You, you had um, Gilead produces Sovaldi. It's a fabulous drug that cures hepatitis C, which is a terrible, debilitating disease that leads very frequently to death uh, and to liver transplants. And they priced it at $1,000 a pill. And so you had this $1,000 pill phenomenon. Um, it turned out that a couple of other companies came online pretty soon thereafter with competitive uh, products. And so the price went down. But you had that happen. You had the Martin Kelly thing happen. Yeah. Where, you know, he was basically a, a bad dude who was more of a hedge fund than a drug guy. And he according to the market on it. And despite the fact that he was just such an outlier... Um, he became the face of, became pharma bro, right? And people didn't weren't able to discern the difference between Martin Trichelli and the CEOs of companies like Pfizer and Merck and J&J and all of the little biotech companies. Do it. You had the 2016 campaign where uh, both in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were um, reading the polls and seeing that people were upset about what they were paying for drugs not realizing that it was about their out-of-pocket expense, but that became a phenomenon. The Democrats um, uh, used that as an issue. Trump jumped on that bandwagon, and Trump began to, uh, the populist that he is, he jumped on that bandwagon and made that a big part of not only his campaign, but his presidency. So all of those things happened. And, um, And in the midst of that, we're being told by our board of directors and our companies, both at Bio and Pharma, you've got to communicate better. You've got to tell the story better, you know. And uh, if people just understood what we were, you know, what the realities are, they wouldn't hate us so much. So, boy, did we do that. We we cited the fact that you just cited that, that uh, pharmaceutical expenses are about 14% of the health spend. Prices are not skyrocketing. The United States produces 57% of all the drugs in the world because we are the only uh, close to free market system. 90% of everything we try to do fails. <laughs> and uh, if you look at Alzheimer's, it's basically 100% of everything that we do fails. And so if you're going to attract investment, you have to um, make sure that in that one chance out of 10 that we succeed, we make up for the other losses. So we, we, we made websites and we made wrote stock speeches and we talked to all of the editors and we did uh, paid advertising and earned advertising and, and we did everything. Uh, if I were making the case before the Supreme Court, I think we'd win. But we weren't. Yeah, we were making the case in front of that guy who goes into the drugstore and doesn't have $800 for his kid's medicine. And he's angry. If we go back to the Medicare Part D reform, which you were part in right before you left Congress, very successful bill. And if you read the debate, the congressional record, a lot of what you folks were discussing 
when you were debating the bill was this idea that you want to move away from Me Too drugs to more specialized drugs. You wanted to create incentives within the structure of government to have us move into these personalized medicines, the CAR-T therapies you've mentioned, the immuno-oncology products. Now, in that sense, it's been a huge success, but those drugs are more expensive. How do you balance that? Well, what happened is an interesting story because uh, I was there when we created the Medicare Part D benefit, a drug benefit, which had not existed in the history of the Medicare program. Uh, It was a very interesting political phenomenon because Republicans at the time uh, had a majority in the House and the Senate, and George W. Bush was in the the White House. And here we were, and I was one of them, pushing very hard to get this benefit. And the Democrats weren't happy about that because they had historically said, you know, the, the Medicare is our program. Yeah. Rightly so, in large measure, because Republicans had fought it, its creation. Uh, the senior citizens are our constituents, and here was Republicans uh, doing this. So they weren't going to be supportive of it. And not only that, they didn't like the way in which um, the Republicans, including myself, um, uh, constructed the program. We said, let's have private insurance companies uh, offer the plans, and then we'll subsidize the plans, as opposed to creating a huge government bureaucracy to do this. So, in order, so we weren't going to get very many Democrats, and in order to get the bill passed, we needed to get basically all of the Republicans, including the most conservative Republicans. And to do that, they wanted skin in the game. They wanted the patient to have skin in the game. That was very all Quran at the time. How do you do healthcare cost containment? People will consume as much healthcare as somebody else will pay for, so let's have skin in the game. So that gave rise to, you have a deductible, and then you have 25% in the initial coverage period and donut hole and so on and so on and so on. As a result of that, you have 45 million people now in the, in the Medicare Part D program, and a million of them are paying more than $3,000 a year out of pocket. And that's wrong. Some of them are paying five, seven, nine, twelve thousand. 12,000. But the bill was successful in moving innovation, obviously. Oh, absolutely. The bill, that was hugely successful, as was the bill that passed as part of the Affordable Care Act, which created the, uh, the whole program for biosimilars. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we're in the midst of COVID-19, and your members were just invited to the White House last month. How far do you think we are away from a breakthrough? What do you think is going to happen? I think we're closer than people think. Um, uh, Gilead that I spoke of recently with regard to Solvaldi has a drug called remdesivir. And what it does is very interesting. If you think about the virus, the virus is sort of right on the line between what we consider to be life and not life. Uh, and what it is essentially is a little um, self-replicating robot is how I like to think of it. And so that virus comes into the host body, into our body, and the way viruses um, attack us is they replicate and replicate and replicate. And how do they do that? They have the ability to essentially reach into our our body and pull building blocks from uh, the molecules that they need to replicate themselves. What this drug does is it, it tricks the virus into picking up one of the wrong uh, building blocks, blocks its ability to replicate. And so that drug is in uh, clinical trials, you know, about six of them around the world. And I think we'll know this month in April uh, whether that works. That could be a, a huge game change. It's also being used by the U.S. military. Do you think we should be doing more along the lines of capturing real-world evidence and trying to bring these things around through another pathway, given the nature of the disease we're dealing with? Real-world evidence is important here. I think the tricky, the tricky thing about um, coming up with drugs and, and vaccines, and we'll get into vaccines um, for COVID in a minute, but 
Here's this highly contagious virus. I tend to think we're all going to get it eventually. Probably, we're just trying yes. to keep the curve down so we don't all get it at the same time. But about 80% of us don't get that sick from it. But obviously, for the other 20%, they tend to get very sick. Many of them need hospitalizations, and obviously, too many of them are dying. So you want to be able to, um, when it gets to a vaccine, now the, a, a treatment drug is one thing because you've got this thing and it could kill you, so... Um, that's different. But when you get to a vaccine, if you're going to inoculate millions and millions and millions of people, uh, 80% of, uh, of whom are not really in danger of dying from this disease or being on a ventilator, uh, you have to make sure that the side effects are not worse than the potential cure. And so it has to be highly uh, safe and highly effective. You know, Regeneron uh, has a drug that reduces inflammation. What uh, the Chinese learned and what our doctors are seeing now is people get this virus and their immune system uh, creates an inflammation in the lungs. And that adds to the acute respiratory distress syndrome. People have a lot hard time breathing. So um, there's a drug that Regeneron uses to, uh, to reduce inflammation in arthritic patients. And they're now trying, going to be trying that out in the case of the COVID disease and if that works, um, that also could be a huge relief, perhaps reduce the need for ventilators and the worst consequences of, of, of the disease. Then you have a couple other things going on. Regeneron also has a, uh, a mouse uh, and which mimics the human immune system. And so what they're trying to do is develop antibodies to the coronavirus in the mice and then test them. And they'll be doing that by this summer in humans. If that works, that you essentially have a, a vaccine, um, not an active vaccine, but you would have a vaccine that could be injected uh, and provide temporary protection, perhaps to the frontline healthcare workers and those who are at most risk, the elderly and those with compromised immune systems, et cetera. You might have to be injected. Patients may have to be injected once every month or two, depending how long it lasts. Um, but that can be a stopgap method until we get the, the real holy grail, and that is a very good, safe, and effective active vaccine. And there we look at companies like Moderna. They basically took the sequence of the virus and developed an antibody against it. And they started last month injecting that into healthy patients in Seattle. And probably within a year, maybe in by January, if everything goes right, we could have a vaccine. Then you have companies like Veer and Alnylam who are using uh, mRNA um, to develop uh, countermeasures. So there's a lot going on. Um, we just have to, as everybody knows, keep the curve down until some of these drugs arrive. Yeah, and, and a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of the repurposing for existing drugs, the tocilizumab that's been used very successfully in CAR-T for cytokine release syndrome, CRS, which is one of the key things that happens with late stage COVID-19 infection. Are you comfortable with the current regulatory structures around repurposing? Are we able to get stuff out fast enough? Or do you think there's something that could be done there? No, I, I, I think everyone's pretty happy with the way the government's been functioning here. You know, when I was in Congress, uh, the industry was very unhappy with the FDA. Everything took too long to get uh, approved by the FDA. Um, we've made huge strides through the various PDUFA programs and, and some of the great leaders at the FDA. And I would say our experience now um, working with our companies that are that are working on this virus uh, has been all highly complementary of the dedication and the capacity and the skill set of the FDA as well as BART as well as, as NIH. You know, what we've done at, at BIO is when this 
outbreak began, uh, I contacted all of our member companies and asked which of them would be best positioned or interested um, to, to, to help out. And 45 of our companies responded affirmatively. And last week we had a, a virtual summit for two days uh, where we had 500 and some people participate, including um, all of those companies and some others. Uh, the government, we had Ambassador Bricks spoke, as did Dr. Cadillac, the, the ASPR. And uh, we formed three working groups, one for diagnostics, one for therapeutics, one for vaccines. Bio is doing everything we can. George Skangos at Veer is, is uh, leading this for us. We're doing everything we can to help collaboration, make sure that there's transparency between the companies, uh, shared resources, including manufacturing resources. And, and I'm so proud of the CEOs that I've talked to and our board members who have essentially said, you know, we might make money, we may lose money, we may break even, we don't care We've got to save lives. The companies are doing great work, obviously yeoman work. There's exceptional things being thrown at this. I'm much in the same mind as you that we will probably have something sooner than later that will probably surprise us. One of the things that's concerning, though, if you look at what's happened in Canada and Chile, they're already passing compulsory licensing laws to try and make these things free under the public requirements of the WTO trips, where basically they're going to take patents away. They feel that they should not be necessarily paying for these drugs, given the nature of the current climate. What do you think is going to be the long-term impact of this? Well, I think it's a terrible, terrible reaction. We've, we've been confronted with this on one scale or another for a very long time. I mean, it just shows a complete ignorance, frankly, of what is involved in making these drugs. Even here in the U.S., you have, uh, and I'm up on the Hill talking to members of Congress all of the time, you have this mythology that somehow the NIH uh, taxpayers supported NIH invents the drugs and the companies just take the information and tweak it and then start price gouging. And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact of the matter is um, this entire enterprise on which we lead the world, we make more drugs than the rest of the world combined, is all dependent upon the willingness of first venture capitalists to invest in the small companies, again, 90% of whom will projects will fail, and the willingness of people in the, in the equities market to buy the stock of these companies. And as soon as you get to a place where the potential investors go, I'm going to lose my shirt nine times out of 10. When we succeed, I have to make that investment back. But as soon as I do, someone's going to impose price controls or um, steal the intellectual property there are plenty of other places that those investors can put their money, and they will. And just when the science is at a tipping point, uh, and a wonderful, magnificent tipping point, the whole thing could dry up. Uh, that would be the crime of the century. If you look at what's been happening in Europe, and we've been tracking mergers and acquisitions in the matured biotech space for five years now, you see an erosion of the ability of early stage biotech to commercialize in Europe. And we've seen last year, 80% of mature phase two biotech was acquired in the United States. So you're not developing biotech in Europe. What do you say to people when they say, well, prices are too high and we, we don't necessarily think that we're going to have a market. We don't care. What do you tell your political friends in Europe who are saying that basically we're just going to go after price and that's all they see? Well, as a matter of fact, I just did that right before, <laughs> it, was, right before it was too late to travel. 
um, I was in Ireland, and I was speaking in Ireland to a group of folks there who are in the business. And of course, Ireland did a very smart thing in that it set its corporate rates low and it gave a 25% tax credit for R&D. And now 62% of Ireland's exports are biopharmaceuticals. So, and it's, a, it's been a booming success for them. On this, at the same time, the government of Ireland spends significantly less than even the European average on drugs. And what I said at, when I spoke to those folks is, you better tell the government that they need to pay a fair price for drugs. Because if the rest of the world uh, continues to free ride on the U.S., the political will among the U.S. policymakers to allow that continue will disappear. It almost has. And once we do international price indexing and the United States starts paying no more than is paid for in European countries, then we're in a downward spiral and investors will go away and the companies like countries like Ireland that are profiting on all of this will lose all of those jobs and all of that revenue. So you know, every time I go into the office of a member of Congress, I hear the same thing. You know, why are we paying so much more for drugs in the U.S. than they're paying for in Canada and Europe and so forth? It's an outrage and so forth. And what I say to them is well, because they're free riding on us. They're definitely free riding on us. And why is that? It's because they have single-payer systems. Their parliaments put a, create a budget every year for their health ministry. The health ministry creates a, creates a budget for acquisition of biopharmaceutical products. And so when our companies sit down across the table from the purchasing agents in those uh, ministries, uh, they say, well, we get uh, $800 for this in the U.S. And turn, well, you're not in the U.S. We'll give you 200 Companies take that because there's a margin there, and it's a small margin. It's better than nothing, but it would never be a, a significant enough margin to drive investment into, into this whole sector. So what I say is if you don't like the fact that they're free riding on us, that should be a trade issue, and including the president, yeah. who's been advocating international price indexing. The president's thing is I don't like people taking advantage of the United States. Well, make that a part of your trade deals and make them pay more. It's not easy to do that, but the the result of that is much more beneficial than basically kneecapping this wonderful industry that's doing so much for mankind. Part of the reason how we met is Vital Transformation, our firm was invited by Bio to come in and do some analysis on the IPI. And uh, you and I spoke on a panel last February in New York. And one of the things we discussed was this point about the IPI and the free riding, and it should be a trade issue. One of the other things, though, that's coming out now is the hospital exemption and the fact that in Europe, under the advanced therapies regulation, Anything that's human-derived, CAR-T, gene therapies, can be made under a second regulatory track in a local hospital and avoid having to go through the regulatory pathway. Basically, not only are they cannibalizing price, but now there's a certain cannibalization around intellectual property. Do you think that would potentially get the Trump administration on board to look at this more from a trade issue? Well, I think it could. I think, <clears throat> I think yeah, you have to take a look at the political situation. Um, as we know, uh, there's an election coming up in November if we're all able to go outside and participate in it. <laughs> And one of two things will happen. President Trump will be reelected or he won't. Uh, if he's reelected, I think whether he persists in going after the biopharmaceutical industry is an interesting question. Um, hopefully, he would see what we are doing in this virus, which is, frankly, critical to his reelection, how the country responds to this. And hopefully, he might be um, awakened to the benefit and the actual nature of our industry and might not feel as compelled 
to uh, take the populist position with regard to our industry in the future. Um, if he's not elected, um, and let's say Joe Biden is elected, then it's really going to depend upon, I think, his attitude. Now, he has the cancer moonshot. You know, he lost his son to cancer. He, I think, better than most understands our industry. But uh, the Democratic Party, frankly, with some notable exceptions, has been tougher to deal with on these issues um, than the uh, Republican Party has. So one of the things that Bio specializes in, you have a conference with 30,000 international biotechnology professionals, investors, companies, startups, researchers, etc. It's one of the, the things on the calendar that we all enjoy. <laughs> um, obviously, it's usually in June. Jim, how are we looking this year? What's going to happen with the conference? Well, frankly, I wish we had 30,000 uh, people. <laughs> with, I think our record is 22,500, but I, I appreciate your optimism. Artistic license, Jim, artistic we're, license. We're, we're, we'd love to get 30,000, and someday we will. We've been doing this for a very long time. I used to call it the Biotechnology Olympics because the smartest people from all over the world come, and they come to our convention, and they do partnering meetings I think we did 45,000 of them last year in a couple of days, a couple of three days. Um, they learn from one another in, in panel discussions and in, 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 in larger sessions, and they meet informally at, uh, over drinks and, and food. And when they leave and go back to their com- countries and their companies, there's almost an exponential growth in what we know and, and, and how we're producing new, new collaborations and so forth. So it's a wonderful event. And it's key, frankly, to Bio's revenues. It's a big moneymaker for us. Um, but now we have COVID, and it's clear that we're not going to be able to do to bring thousands of people under one roof at a convention center in San Diego. So we're going virtual. We're going to go virtual for the first time. What we're hoping is that, although it seems like it would be a huge disadvantage, um, first off, we'll probably charge less for virtual participation, so that's an advantage. The, you won't have the parties going on, and uh, unless we can figure out how to do a, a virtual dance party in the evening, I don't know about that. But it may be that that we find that a couple of things happen. One is that well, people will say, "Well, I don't have to get on an airplane. I don't have to get a hotel room. I can uh, sit in front of my computer and I can do the one-on-one partnering um, through, through video uh, contacts. Um, that um, we can have all kinds of interesting conversations." Uh, virtually, and we're learning to live that way now. And so hopefully um, there'll be some advantages as well as some obvious disadvantages of doing it this way. Um, One of the things that I'm interested in looking at is we've had spectacular speakers, and I've been doing a series of interviews. Um, My favorite was probably when I interviewed George W. Bush and Bill Clinton at the same time. Uh, (laughs) But there's some people we haven't been able to get. Like We tried to get Bill Gates for years, and he's never been able to make his schedule work. It would be nice to have former President Obama and, and people like that who might find it a bit easier. We might find it easier to get those kinds of speakers if they don't have to, again, fly somewhere and give up a day or two to to make it happen. And Bill Gates has been so forward and so prescient on the possibility of having a a coronavirus outbreak. I mean, it would be great to have him there. If you've seen the TED Talk he did in 2015. It's um, scary. It's scary. He said it was coming. But I have to tell you, I've been serving since 2014 on what we called, initially called the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. We now call it the, the um, Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, co-chaired by um, Tom Ridge, former Homeland Security Secretary and uh, Governor of Pennsylvania, Joe, former Senator Joe Lieberman. Tom Daschle's on that. Donna Shalala was on that. Now she's elected to Congress, and I serve on it. We formed in 2014, and in 2015, 
we put our first publication out, which was called A National Blueprint for Biodefense. And in this blueprint, we not only said it's just a matter of time uh, till a pandemic hits, we are not, we are woefully unprepared from every, from leadership, from coordination, from budget, uh, from science. Uh, and we put out a whole set of recommendations. Um, and we've been touting them ever since. I was just looking at a, uh, an interview that some of us did from that panel three years ago. And I said, look, we've sent these reports to the Hill. We've gone to the White House. For the most part, we're, they're still not taking uh, this threat seriously. Don't expect the voters to be calling up and saying, hey, please prepare for a pandemic. They've got lives to live, so they don't know about this. But what you can be assured is that when it comes, and it will, and we're not prepared, they'll be held to pay politically. And I think that's going to be the case. I also hope that what happens now is the Congress and this administration and the next administration will say, wow, now we understand what you guys have been talking about. We have to be much better prepared now. How would you grade the administration and the congressional response to the virus? How do you think they've been doing? Well, I mean, I've, I hate to say this, but obviously the, the administration was late. I think that the president uh, underestimated um, what was happening here. Uh, it's his nature to always want to uh, <clears throat> say everything's good and better than ever, and he's never seen anything like this before. Um, he did say, you know, nobody knew this could happen. Well, that's not true. All the experts knew that. It could happen, and there were reports in the White House about what was coming. So he was late to the game. Now I think he's trying to do everything he can at this point. As a former member of Congress, I know the frustrations that's come from partisanship, but I do have to say that three times in a row now, Congress has passed legislation in a bipartisan fashion after the normal you know, to and fro about what kind of policies to incorporate in it. But that's been good to see. What What is has been really discouraging is, and I don't know if these poll numbers have changed, but just a few weeks ago I saw where they asked the question, how likely do you think it is that someone you know will, will get this COVID disease? And 68% of Democrats said likely. 35% of Republicans said so. Hmm. We've come to a point now where even the science of the contagiousness of a virus becomes a partisan issue. And for God's sake, we've got to get better than that. How do we get over that, Jim? I think we need to have leaders, uh, political leaders, who understand that there's no point in being in office if you're just there to perpetuate your own electability. The idea that anybody would want to serve in Congress and get practically nothing done except work to make sure that their party stays in control it's the worst job in the world. <laughs> you know, it's such an honor and such an opportunity to hold elective office. And the way the system should work, and it takes leadership to do this, you say, look, Republicans want to do this, Democrats want to do that. Uh, and the Democrats say, we compromised, which is a dirty, become the dirtiest word in Washington, right? We compromised. And we had to compromise, so could say the Democrats, because we didn't have enough Republicans in the House. So the next time you go vote, if you didn't like the compromise we make, give us more Democrats. And Republicans can say the same thing. So that's the way it should work. You should come together where you can and then take the differences to the ballot, but not refuse to compromise for fear of the other party gaining some traction. So do you think a lot of this has to do with Twitter? Do you think we're just dealing with social media? Are you glad you didn't have to deal with Twitter during your time on the Hill? 
I am. I'm. I'm glad. To, uh, you know the the fact that that you can now. And I saw this coming, but the fact that you can you can fake uh, video. Now, yeah. Uh, the truth is has been the victim when the when the internet began. I remember thinking, Nirvana is on the way. Utopia, where finally the world will be educated and informed, and we'll be able to share ideas and communicate, and will and and every human being will like be like a brain, a cell in the brain, the mass brain of humanity. Well, not so much. We get cats playing piano. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't even bother me so much. But what what you know, it's the old story about a uh, a lie can get around the world before the truth can tie its shoes, right? And the fact of the matter is that there's so much misinformation and disinformation on the Internet. And now people between where they go on the Internet and where they go on cable television, um, people don't like um, to have uh, anything less than certainty. But the fact of the matter is reality is ambiguous. And ambiguity is uncomfortable. If we refuse to accept the uncomfortableness of ambiguity and say, I only want certainty. Then we're going to hang out with people and on, on, on internet sites and on cable television shows that just confirm our own bias, confirmation bias, they call it. And we just become increasingly polarized and tribal. And that is the route not to utopia, but to dystopia. Bringing this back to your members, a lot of your members deal with uncertainty as a part of their business model. What you're seeing is a disconnect that's emerging between congressional opinion about what the industry is, what science is, and how things are actually developed. Yet we see, like CAR-T, we have hepatitis C, we even have CRISPR. We have all these wonderful technologies that are just about to break through that can actually be transformational. How do we get this to the membership and the Congress as well as the public so we can generate support for this as opposed to the animosity we're dealing with now? Well, it's a full-time job, and that's what we at Bio are paid to do. But it's very uphill. First off, it's complicated. People understand rocket science, if you will, but they don't understand what happens at the cellular level. It's hard to explain sometimes. So you have that. You have the fact that even when you explain the science and you explain the realities of our business, you have too many members of Congress who frankly say, yeah, I see what you mean. You're right, but I've looked at the polls. And the polls say people are mad at you, so I can't help you. I have to be your enemy, which is really sad. And then you have this turnover. We have 100 new members of Congress elected just in 2018. And I make it my point to go to meet every single one of them who's willing to meet with me. And you have to start from scratch. You have to explain what biotechnology is and how it's supplied and how its investors work and and all of that. So it's a constant uh, uphill struggle. But as bad as this terrible global pandemic is, if there's any silver lining, it may be that not only the politicians, but the public at large will say, wow, look who came to our rescue. These uh, scientists who work in all of these companies, whether it's the largest global pharmaceutical companies or some little tiny biotech that they never heard of, hopefully um, will come out of this with a, a much deeper understanding and respect for what it is that these wonderful scientists and entrepreneurs are doing. It's your last couple months. If you could make one change immediately before you step down, if you had carte blanche to make a regulatory change or make one suggestion, what would you like to change? Yeah, the thing that I think is doable is what I mentioned earlier, and that's the, uh, the cap on out-of-pocket for Part D. Um, if you're a member of Congress right now and somebody's complaining about what they spent at the drugstore, there's almost no policy that you can point to that you could support 
that isn't one that's inimical to the success of biotech innovation. So most members of Congress are writing about reimportation and price controls and all this stuff. If we could put a $200 per month cap on the Medicare Part D program and have the industry pay for it, which I've said from the beginning we ought to do, it's not that costly, we would be at a place where at least the 45 million people on Medicare, those who are above the age of 65 or disabled, would no longer have this worrisome reality and this costly reality of paying thousands of dollars out of pocket. And finally, uh, if we could do that, and it's in the Senate bill, it's in the House bill, and it's among the the president's policy agenda items, we could at least give Congress the ability to say, look what we did. We spared all of those people from unavoidable costs, and we made the drug companies pay for it. That would be the beginning of a fix to this problem. And then I would argue um, that if we can do that, there would be a lot of data that would be generated very quickly. We would find out what did that limitation on out-of-pocket cap do for adherence to prescriptions. I think it would do a lot. Yeah. Very staggering statistics about how many people never fill their prescriptions or stay with them because they don't have the money. Absolutely. And then that would show us what that did to reduce hospitalization costs. Once we get that data, and I think that data would be absolute proof that it never made sense to have a high out-of-pocket costs for drugs. If I twist my ankle, the question is, do I want to call an ambulance to take me to an ER or ask my neighbor to take me to an urgent care center for my x-ray, right? But I've got skin in the game. I'm doing the latter, not the former, right? But nobody takes extra medicine because it's cheap, right? So if you prove in the Medicare system that it is actually cost-effective and also saves people's lives and, and improves their health, then I don't think it's beyond reason for policymakers at the state or federal level to say to the commercial health insurance industry, you have to do the same thing. If you want to have high deductibles, that's up to you, but not when it comes to prescription drugs. They're too vital, and you're actually only hurting yourself by um, separating out how you look at the finances of your drug programs versus your hospitalization programs. So what are your plans after bio? What's next? Well, I've been trying to save the world since I got elected to, well, I was, since I was a social worker in, in my 20s and, and since I got elected to the state legislature in Pennsylvania when I was 28 and 24 years in elective office and then uh, 16 at bio, um, I think the next phase of my world-saving crusade is going to be focused on climate change. I think climate change is dire. I think it transcends every other issue that you can think of. It's about the inhabitability of our planet. And my uh, younger daughter is three months pregnant, and some people think that we're beyond the tipping point in climate, but I'm not going down without a fight, so that's where I'm going to focus. Jim, Representative Greenwood, thank you very much for your time. It's been fun. My pleasure. (laughs) 